Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at all protected. I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife, And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GOAT team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legends of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, it is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. We are into 2021. It's hard to believe that, one, we've been on the air doing our podcasts for now over a year, which is great because I love doing it and I love hanging out with you, even if it is virtual right now. But, you know, 2021, it is hopefully going to be a better year. We'll get COVID under under control and we'll get back to some level of normalcy. But the biggest thing is what's going to happen with aviation in 2021. Yes. And if we can come back. But you might not be escaping my harassing you much longer because <laughs> I'm in trouble. Just a couple of. <laughs> A couple of hours ago, I received good news. I have a date for my COVID shot. Oh, great. So next week, I'm going to be shot up, and a couple of weeks after that, I'll get the other one, and then I will be a traveling fool. Oh, there you go. Well, I look forward to seeing you on the circuit. I know that uh, I'm going to make you come at least west and enjoy our 60-degree weather and beautiful sunshine while we do our podcast in my office. So we'll be right at home, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, looking over the mountain to see if any of those clouds are going to drump snow. Yeah, exactly. I, I was just telling somebody earlier today that I can remember being out there at Jefferson County Airport. I don't know if you remember, but we got like 18 inches of snow. Something was just, I was planning on leaving, and I didn't leave. And my wife with me, and we stayed in the hotel. And we got up the next morning, and I couldn't believe almost all of it was gone. Of course. See, we get all that snow, one, just to humble us, and two, to water the lawn. I make sure I drop fertilizer before I know there's a big snowstorm so that I don't have to water it in. So <laughs> it works. It works just fine. Well, I'd like to remind everybody that this show is in part sponsored by 
of Emco Insurance. And I know, Greg, you have your airplane previously insured with them. All the feedback we've gotten is people are very happy with Avemco and that just by listening to our show, you can be eligible for a 5% discount. Just got to remember to tell them in the beginning that you listen to the program and they'll give you a 5% discount. And that the good thing about Avemco is the fact that they offer so many different products. You and I have talked on previous shows about the fact that a lot of flight schools now require that if you're going to fly there, whether you're a student learning to fly or running an aircraft, they want you to carry your own renter's insurance because liability has gone up so much, especially in the rental markets. And so Avemco offers a product for renter's insurance, which is great. And of course, they're very competitive, which they should be. And I know that you know, before you can fly, I know that a couple of flight schools out here that I fly at require you to have that insurance policy before they'll uh, rent you an aircraft. And then, of course, uh, with the owner itself, you're going to have insurance on your aircraft. They have home built insurance. And a lot of folks who fly outside the United States, especially places like in Mexico, you have to have supplemental insurance and, and they offer a product for that because a lot of insurance policies will not cover you if you go to areas where there is a high propensity for aircraft being stolen. And of course, we know south of the border, that happens because they're used a lot for drugs and, and other things. So, And then of course, if you're a flight instructor, Again, a lot of these organizations want you to carry your own flight instructor insurance. And so, again, if you're in the need for any kind of insurance, the best place to, to start is at Vemco. Because as John said, you may get a 5% discount just by telling them that you listen to our show. And the fact that you're actually learning stuff from our show we aren't just here for your personal entertainment. We're here for your personal education. So there it is. There's my plug, John. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I've been looking over some of the GA accidents that are not NTSB accidents, although some of them were. Some of the, the things that I would just classify as stupid things pilots do. Now, I've done some stupid things in my life, too. But, boy, when I read down some, this list of events that occur, you know, you get it in some of the GA magazines. They'll post some of that stuff. It's just unbelievable. And the frustrating thing, John, is that you and I, a lot of times in all the shows that we've done thus far and hopefully we'll do in the future, we touch on these things. We talk about these things. We talk about how to prevent these types of accidents, yet we're seeing them still occurring. I still got guys running out of gas. I mean, that is flying 101. You learn that basically on your first and second flight as a student pilot. Don't run out of gas. <laughs> I mean, we have people stretching it all the time trying to make it happen. You know, oh, I can make it to my airport. I'm only five. I'm only 10 miles away. Yeah, I'm running on empty, but you know, it's all downhill from there. Yeah, it is. It's downhill from there until you land somewhere other than the pavement at the airport. Yeah, there's a lot of those in there too. And what's going on? I see a lot of 
they make it down, they land successfully, and then they're in the weeds. Yeah. Loss of control during the landing. I've seen an increase in it, and, and it's kind of strange. And we're fortunate enough to have our buddy Jason McCassick back on the show with us today. So we'll touch a little bit of that with him since he used to be a Fed on the FAA side. And we'll talk to him about that. But I agree that these guys are losing control. And I don't know if it's because some of the younger flight instructors, when they're teaching landing technique, aren't teaching all of those things that are necessary to include in the decision to land. I've got guys that are running off the side of the runway and four and five and six knot crosswinds. I mean, that's a nothing. Yet these guys aren't able to handle it. They get the airplane slow. The airplane starts to drift. They don't use the appropriate corrective flight control inputs. And they try to salvage a bad situation rather than power up, pull up, get out of there, figure it out, and come back and do it again rather than just letting it continue until, like you said, they're off in the weeds. And by then, it's too late. Yes. So if you're looking for insurance, Give the Avemco a call, 888-879-0389, or on the web at avemco.com backslash fight safety. You know, it's sad because as we go into 2021, uh, this year started off already with two accidents that I know of. I know there have been a lot more. I've, I've been following the preliminaries, but the two one uh, accidents that I've been looking at involved a Piper Comanche because that airplane is near and dear to my heart. There was an accident that involved three fatalities up in Michigan, uh, husband, wife, and their teenage son. And it's just heartbreaking when I see the fact that a family has been killed in an airplane accident. And it really pains me when I see that it was a Piper Comanche because the Comanche is such a solid airplane. I always enjoyed mine and it was one of the the best airplanes I've owned. And then recently there was a two fatal late model Beach Baron that crashed in, in Arkansas. And that happened right after takeoff. So of course the immediate thought is that they have some sort of problem, i.e. Uh, an engine problem that they did not take care of in a timely manner because they crashed right after takeoff in an open field. And doesn't look like they were trying to land. It may have been that they lost control. But that's what the investigation is for, is to try and make those determinations. But, you know, you start to see those kinds of accidents, John. And what I'm afraid of, and you and I are going to be talking about it in this upcoming year in various shows, is the same old stuff. Guys trying, guys being a generic term in my book, Pilots trying to do things either beyond their own capabilities, that of the airplane, or a combination of both. And I'm really worried about that. Yes, just trying to correct a bad situation as it's going bad instead of saying, I'm out of here and we'll do this again. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no shame in the fact that if you push the power up and you pull up, you know what? You get yourself calmed down. You get the airplane under control. Yeah, you go out there, collectively get your, your your mind back in it, and you go do what you need to do, and you try it again. And I won't even say these are Chuck Yeager skills that these guys are employing, because if they had Chuck Yeager skills, they would survive these bad situations. 
So, you know, the big thing is be prudent. There is no embarrassment whatsoever by, you know, coming to a rationalization that, you know what, this isn't working out. I'm just going to abandon it. I'm going to get it together and come back and do it again. Yeah, you're going to burn a little more gas. And you get to log a little more flight time, but at least you're alive to talk about it. And that's the biggest thing is I'm seeing these accidents. I know that you've been looking at them as well. And it's just sad, especially after a major holiday, starting a new year and, you know, a family has perished in an accident. So it's a tough situation. And that's why in the show that we do, John, we both preached it. We talk about it off the air as well. And that is, what is our purpose? And you and I have, have talked about the directions of the show and where we want to go with it and what we want to try and convey. But our bottom line, and I'm speaking for you, you can always correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm rarely wrong. So I know you're not going to correct me, pal. <laughs> but... <laughs> But the fact is, is that we're trying to educate and we use accidents and incidents and discussions and experience and experts, different voices to try and educate from a variety of different perspectives. And with that in mind, I'm going to bring in one of those experts who we call a friend of the show because Jason's been on several times now to lend that expertise in a variety of aspects, particularly on the maintenance side of the house. and. Today, we wanted to do a show. We got an email recently about the fact that people like that we cover the spectrum. We don't just focus on big airplanes or little airplanes. We cut across the board. And one of the things that I've been working on and learning more about more recently is light sport aircraft, LSAs, and the differences between the LSA and certificated aircraft, not from the fact that I know what the LSA is with regard to their, their certification criteria and things like that. But I'm talking about the rules and the regulations and the policies and the procedures of operating an LSA versus a certificated aircraft. So I figured that we bring Jason in to talk about some of those aspects since he was a former FAA inspector. He comes from it from the regulatory side. And because he is an AMP and an IA, he can lend some credence to some of the peculiarities of, of the maintenance of an aircraft, especially the LSA. I figure, John, that you'll have somebody to talk to since I usually shoot off my mouth too much on these shows. So welcome, Jason. We're glad to have you back on the show with us today. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me again, and I hope you guys had a, had a great new year, and I hope there's a lot more great shows to come. Well, if we can get you back on, I'm sure there will be. <laughs> it's probably going to cost me an arm and a leg now, but other than that, we're, we're always happy to have you on the show because you bring a, a wealth of knowledge, and I know that John gets tired of just listening to me talk, so now he's going to be able to ask questions as well. Absolutely. Any, anything I can do to help. You guys know that. Well, one of the things that, as I talked about in the opening, and that is light sport aircraft. And the FAA is currently reviewing some changes to the light sport certification and rules, regulations that will probably come out in the next couple of years. They recently got an exemption to push it out a little bit to study the issue more. 
And while I don't want to really get into the nuts and bolts of it because uh, nothing has been firmed up, a couple of the basic things, and I know that you've looked at it, Jason and John, they want to increase the weight limitation from 1,320 pounds. They want to they want to up that so that they can allow larger aircraft to be flown under that light sport category. They want to be able to certify, and certify is probably the wrong word, but accept some of these LSAs for commercial operations and then add to it a variety of things that will enhance the performance of these aircraft, such as retractable landing gear and increased airspeeds, because right now there's a maximum airspeed restriction and things like that. So I've got some concerns because as these aircraft start to get bigger, they become more complex. If they become more complex, it's not so much the airplane as it is, one, the necessary and required maintenance, because a lot of these airplanes that aren't certificated don't necessarily fall under all of the rules of the FAA for a certificated aircraft. But two, pilot requirements, I believe, need to change with that increase in complexity and size of the aircraft because you can fly an LSA right now with a FAA-issued medical, but you don't need to have an FAA-issued pilot certificate. You can fly with a driver's license. And that's going to lead into a discussion later on. So I wanted to get your thoughts on LSAs and what you've seen, Jason. And I know, John, you've been looking at some of these issues as well. Well, you know, from from my background, you know, I kind of agree with you on some, you know, on what you said there, Greg. But, you know, a lot of people kind of have the misconception about the maintenance of just because it's an LSA requires less oversight, if you will, and it requires, uh, there's, they have this idea that there's less restrictions. There's actually not. There's actually, an LSA actually has more. And when, when you get into the maintenance part of it, the regulation's pretty clear that th- there's a couple of different functions of maintenance that can be done on LSAs. You could have a, an owner that has a, he's a certificated repairman specifically for his airplane. You could actually be an FAA certificated mechanic you could be a certificated repair station with authorization to work on LSAs. There's a bunch of different ways, but the major key for the maintenance side for an LSA that a lot of people don't get, don't understand, don't realize, or haven't even heard is that every single service bulletin or service letter or new instruction for continued airworthiness, whichever one you want to use that comes out from the manufacturer for an LSA must be complied with. Now, that's not for a regular Type certificated aircraft, Part 91, they don't have to do that. But for an LSA, they do. And it has to be documented. It has to be recorded. You know, instead of calling it an annual inspection, it's a yearly 12-month conditional inspection. So there's some different verbiage. There's some different acronyms that go along with, with maintaining and, and doing maintenance on LSAs. But the, the actual maintenance that needs to be performed is actually a, a little more intensive than it is for a regular type certificated aircraft. And it's more of a challenge, too, because there's so so different many types for a mechanic to try to keep track of. If you're running a little shop on a small airport where there's a lot of activity, there's just so many different LSAs. And the owners can do a lot of the work themselves and make some customizations, my word, make some changes to it. Little tweaks with their own personality, which could get 
someone that's not familiar with the airplane in trouble. Absolutely. I agree with you, John. And I know that there has been some misconception or misperception about who actually can do the work on an LSA. I've known people in the past who thought that because they own it, they fly it, they can work on it. But there still is a requirement that you have to have a level of certification to turn a wrench on those LSAs. Other than what the FAA allows, pilot-assisted maintenance or preventative maintenance. Yeah, and, you know, they think because they built it, they know all about it. And and they know a lot about it. There's no question about that. But there's also a lot more knowledge that goes into getting the certificate and getting the responsibility down pat. As Jason mentioned, you know, there's a lot of responsibility that goes with either a repayment certificate or having an an A&P license or certificate. I keep calling it a license, old term. But an A&P certificate has a lot of burdens with it. And a lot of people don't realize that, and uh, it can lead to other problems. LSAs have been exempted from a lot of things, but not the record keeping. And many people, I, I see them go out there and they're tweaking on the, on the bird, and, you know, I don't see any paperwork around. It's all supposed to be recorded. Absolutely. You always need to have the, the latest instructions for continued airworthiness. And when you're completed, if the, if the operation in which you, that you performed required a tool, you need to be writing in the aircraft's maintenance records exactly what you did. Everything needs and, to be documented. And we've done a show in the past where we focus truly on maintenance. And I think that some of the things that I've seen with some of the poor record keeping in LSA logbooks is the fact that the guys who are turning the wrench are qualified. They're AMP mechanics and that kind of stuff. But I think they're trying to use the certificated aircraft mentality with the LSA. And as you brought up, Jason, when we talk about service bulletins or service instructions, yeah, those are optional in a certificated type certificated aircraft. But with the LSA, you must, with a capital M-U-S-T, must, perform those service bulletins and service instructions. And as many professional mechanics that are out there that listen to our show, and I know that with PAMA that John represents and stuff, I mean, these guys are very highly educated. They're smart guys, but a lot of them really don't understand the LSAs and the fact that unlike a type certificated airplane, there are things that they must do that is counterintuitive to the things they've probably been doing for the last 10, 15, 20 years. You know, most people don't realize, most mechanics, I'd be surprised if mechanics don't realize this, but a regular airplane, a beach that's owned by an individual, doesn't have to perform any of the service bulletins. But if that airplane's operated commercially, flying somebody around for a fee, they have to be done. So you're, you're boxing in the GA community with a vehicle below it, which would they would consider below it, which is a sport, like sport aircraft, has to comply with the service bulletins. And if they operate the airplane commercially, it has to comply with service bulletins. But they're in the middle, not required to comply with service bulletins. And the manufacturers would like nothing more than to have that segment of the aviation community required to perform those service bulletins. And they've tried for years to get the FAA to mandate that, and they've been unable so far to get it. But I wonder if that's going to last forever. 
and I haven't seen this, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you guys are more well-versed with the maintenance regs of 43 and, and the higher end of 91, 91, 405, I think, and 403. But in 91, 327, which really addresses special airworthiness certificated aircraft, that is light sport, there's a couple of paragraphs in here. Let me just read them real quick, and I want to get your interpretation or at least your perspective. And that is, one, one of the biggest issues, of course, is that it the owner you know, or operator is responsible for the maintenance of this aircraft. While somebody else is turning a wrench that has a certificate that says they're an AMP or a repairman, it is the final authority, if you will, that the owner or operator make sure that the maintenance being performed on that aircraft is in compliance. And a lot of people forget that, that as an owner, if the mechanic has failed to put a logbook entry in, that's on you. It's also on the mechanic, but it's on you because you are the owner operator. And it goes even further than that, because as a pilot, if I rent that airplane, I want to look through the logbooks to see what was done the last annual, last hundred hour, whatever it may be. Or in this case, with an LSA, the last condition or any work that's been done, you have a responsibility because part of your determination of whether or not the aircraft is airworthy is to make sure that the paperwork is is correct. And, and a lot of people forget that. But in this reg, it says the owner or operator complies with each safety directive applicable to the aircraft that corrects an existing unsafe condition. In lieu of complying with a safety directive, an owner or operator may, one, correct an unsafe condition in a manner different from that specified in the safety directive, provided the person issuing the directive concurs with that action and the way i read that is if a manufacturer of an lsa puts a safety directive out and you jason are the owner and you decide you know what i have a different way of of fixing this problem you can't just go out and fix it you got to call the manufacturer and go hey this is what i'm proposing what do you think am i reading that correct yeah greg yeah that's right on you're you're reading it correct and i think you're going to touch on this here in just a second you just can't Go out and do that the way that you want it to. You know, once you get a little farther into that reg, it tells you that if you decide you're going to do that, there's a set of consensus standards that you would do that to. But it's just not you using the consensus standards. It's you developing the alternative, using the standard, and then both seeking either the manufacturer or a representative for the administrator, a person acceptable to the administrator, that say, yeah, that is acceptable and you can do that. You just can't randomly go out and do it. And I think that for the listeners, especially those that are flying LSAs or considering an LSA, you brought up the term earlier and you said it again, and that is a consensus standard. When these airplanes are put into service, they aren't built and they don't conform to any FAA type certification standard that you would find in a Part 23 or Part 25. They fall under this consensus standard. Can you just give us an overview of the difference between the consensus standard and the certification regulation? Sure. So the ASTM stands for the American Society for Testing and Materials Standards. So the FAA has has gone in and, and had a look. There's a set of American standards and international standards. And through those, they've looked at various things. So the FAA put out a list specifically for LSAs. And it has to do with there's a consensus standards for airplanes, for gliders 
for gyroplanes and balloons and powered parachutes and weight shift controls. And what each one of the standards is, it kind of breaks things down and, and tells you, you look for something specific that you're going to fix. So if it's going to be design and performance, you'll go and look at this specific standard. If you're looking at, you know, a required equipment that needs to be on the whatever the aircraft glider, balloon, gyroplane, you look at another standard. The process of doing quality assurance checks. There's a whole list of standards that the FAA has listed. And what they call it is the FAA calls them FAA accepted. So the FAA has reviewed all of these consensus standards. And they agree that if you follow these while performing the maintenance of whichever one of the categories that you're in, that they deem that that is acceptable. That's acceptable to the administrator to do that. It's only when you deviate from that that you need to either seek from the manufacturer acceptance of what you're going to deviate to or go to someone that's acceptable to the administrator, which could be a DAR, DER, AMPIA. You know, depending on what you're really doing, you just kind of need to be able to, you know, review the standard first and then decide how you want to make your alteration. And with this consensus standard, I know that, you know, as an aircraft owner and, of course, a pilot, I try to review a lot of the regulations, not so much the operational stuff, but more on the maintenance side, because I feel that if I'm going to get whacked on a, on a ramp check and stuff and I get an FAA inspector looking at my logbooks, he or she may ask me questions about it, that if I don't have an answer, it may demonstrate that I'm not fully conversant with what I need to be conversant with as far as, well, how do you know your airplane is airworthy or not? Because it goes beyond just walking around the airplane to make sure that the aircraft is in a physical condition of airworthiness. But again, a lot of people, I believe, forego or forget that the paperwork associated with that aircraft, that engine, and anything else on that airplane is also part of the airworthiness check that a pilot must be conversant with. I can't believe the number of times that I see pilots come in and pick up an airplane that's been in maintenance for sometimes several months, and they get it and do a walk around, and they leave. And they never actually talk to anybody about what was done to my airplane, making them the, the repair station or, or the AMP, walk around with them and tell them what they did other than handing him a bill for the work that was done, you should talk to the, the guy who did the work or the guy who was overseeing the work and have them explain to you what they did. That's a twofer as far as the pilot's concerned because the pilot is going to get the information that he needs to understand the work that was done on the airplane and so on. But it also is going to require the mechanic to look at what he did again. And you may just find out that there was something wrong there was something mispositioned. There's a whole host of minor things that could have been wrong that can grow into a major thing in the very near future. So, But I see it over and over and over when I, I'm at the airports. Pilots will just come in, grab the airplane. It was in maintenance. They call ahead and have it pulled outside. Bing, bang, boom, they're in the airplane and gone. I shake my head because that's just a recipe for, for disaster. Now, is there, I know that, of course, every aircraft, certificated aircraft, that is type certificated aircraft, we're, we're typically conversant with the airplane flight manual or the pilot operating handbook or books that are a combination of both, if you will. 
And there is a difference between an airplane flight manual and a POH. A lot of people don't know that, you know, some of those, uh, some of the parts are just informational. Other parts are approved. Other parts are accepted by the FAA. But the one thing that is I've gotten into LSAs and that kind of stuff is that there is a new term of art that I became familiar with called the Aircraft Operating Instructions, the AOI. And that really is a combination, if you will, of an AFM and a POH. It's for the light sport aircraft. It's called the Aircraft Operating Instructions. And again, I've, I've had people go, well, you know, I follow the POH. Well, you got to follow the AOI as well, because that is the way the manufacturer wants you to operate your aircraft and all of its components. And it says so in the regulation. And again, if you're going to have an LSA and you're going to operate an LSA, you really need to understand all of the applicable regulations and what they mean for you as not only an aircraft owner and operator, but as a pilot as well. And I think you brought up a good point earlier, Jason. You know, when you look at the consensus standards versus uh, the type certification, you know, you can pull up a type certificate data sheet in any airplane that's been certified. Is there a way to do that? I know you mentioned it earlier. Is there a way to specifically go into the an, an LSA or are you looking at specific component parts of an LSA when you're looking up the consensus standard? So when you pull up the standards, so the FAA has them listed out for you. Go up and have a look. It really depends on what sort of alteration you're going to make or some sort of repair that you're going to make or some sort of operational change that you're going to make. There's different sets of categories for that. So there's one group for design and performance. There is another subset for required equipment. There's a subset for quality assurance, production acceptance tests, operation instructions, just like you were talking about, AOIs and pilot operating handbooks, flight training supplements. There's maintenance and inspection procedures, identification and recording of major repairs and major alterations, continued airworthiness. So there's standards for it, depending on what you're going to do. Like in a normal traditional type certificated airplane, let's just take a Cessna 172 and you land off field and in your process of running down to the end of the runway while you're circling back around, you bump a tree. You hit a tree and you've now dented the leading edge of the wing just inboard of the tip rib. And so Cessna's manual, you're going to the Cessna manual and the structural manual portion for Cessna for the repair is very clear about how you how you would do that. You're, you're very clear. But some of the LSAs don't have that in-depth structural repair process that you would have. And so whether you're going to do the repair or make some sort of alteration or stiffen that side, you know, with an LSA, you would go into the consensus standards and go under that particular portion of it for design and performance, if you will. It would just give you a generalized set of procedures, you know, just in general of how you would conduct that sort of repair slash alteration. Now, some manufacturers do go to length to tell you how to do it. You know, the composite manufacturers will tell you how you're going to do the composite repair, some of the metal ones. And there's there's varying instructions because there's so many different manufacturers. But the consensus standards is kind of your your root table for your base information of, of how to maintain, oversee, record, document, and find additional information that you need if you can't get it directly from the manufacturer. There's a standard for you to use.
I always like clear and concise procedures when you're making especially structural repairs. Absolutely. I, I am all about instructions for, you know, every time you and I talk, Greg, I am all about instructions for continued airworthiness. What's the latest? What's the newest? What's been provided? Do we have it? I've never liked the general just use. I, I do a, an annual inspection because it's a 1941 such and such Aranka chief or whatever the airplane is that we just use 4313. And I created my own specific annuals. I like to have, I, and I've always been in the environments in which I've conducted maintenance, you know, in basic 121 air carrier certificates, you know, to flight schools, to part 91 maintenance on my own. I, I like the instructions for continued. Or I, I like the manufacturers. Nobody knows an airplane better than they do. So I'd like for them to tell me in our experience and dealing with all this customer service, this is how we would do this. So I'm kind of always in a, I'm one of those, uh, you know, I used to be one of those inspectors when I was out watching the the guys do maintenance on, on the flight line, you know, out on the ramp while they were doing it. And there was no manuals out there. I kind of always like to ask those questions. That was one of the first questions I always asked doing a, just a, what we call GA contacts. It's just a, you know, an inspector going out, talking to, to mechanics on the ramp, just having a conversation, you know, how's it going? Any problems with the airport? You know, those kinds of things. I always asked about instructions for continued airworthiness. That's my big thing. I've always had it for myself. And when I do it, we always have it. So that's kind of one of those things. And and to be able to fall back with the LSA, which is slightly different, they don't have, not all LSAs have that sort of rigid instructions for them. They have to go back to the standards and kind of read into them a little bit. You know, I was always puzzled with, for example, Cessna and Piper comparing the two. And as you said a moment ago, Cessna has those instructions for structural repairs in their manual. They have a lot of detail in their manual. But you go to Piper, and they don't, especially when you, as you move aft towards the tail of the airplane. There's virtually no instructions. And their philosophy has been, for as long as I can remember, is that if you have any damage or anything that you need to repair back there beyond minor damage or just minor maintenance, is that you get a, a DER to come in and give you the instructions to fix it, which adds considerably to the cost, but it also guarantees that you're going to get what you need to get. So it's always been puzzling why they, those two manufacturers in particular are on opposite ends of the spectrum for ICAs. Well, I'm going to segue into something that we talked about on a previous show with Jason because uh, we got some great feedback by email on our episode regarding the Piper PA-28 Wing Airworthiness Directives. We appreciate our listeners sending that feedback because, one, they talked about their own personal experiences with their particular airplane and how they pre-flight and what they look for. But I think there's still a little confusion, Jason, and while we got you, we may as well try and clarify that right now there is an AD that deals with corrosion. Now, a lot of people are relating this back because I was reading some of the emails where they were talking about the Piper Arrow that crashed that was being operated by Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona where the wings separated. And during the course of that investigation, it was found that the wing spar failed due to cracking in the wing bolt 
holes or in the circumference of the wing bolt holes that hold the wing spars together. And that is yet to be issued as far as an AD and the inspections and the corrective actions. But the FAA did issue an AD regarding corrosion in that same area of the wing spar. So can you just give us, uh, again, some clarification? The corrosion AD is totally separate from this hopefully soon-to-be-released bolt hole cracking AD. Absolutely, Greg. Yeah, so when we've been working on this in the discussion that we had last time, we used it for an example, and, and I, I believe you guys posted on the podcast the pictures and everything that I forged you the, of the airplane that I had just looked at. I was performing a couple of different inspections on a set of wings in the wing spar box and the fuselage interface components for the wings and the fuselage. But there's two separate, these are two completely separate issues. One specifically is corrosion. And the other one is cracking, like the embryo separation. So let's talk about the corrosion. So in the particular airplane that I sent for you guys, the inspection that I would like you to do is, is they on certain applications in certain airplanes, they have a kit that you can buy where you'll cut a hole in the bottom of the wing and you'll put an adapter plate in and put an inspection panel on. And they basically want you to go from the root of the spar to about 48 inches out, I believe is the, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's 48 inches out. And they want you to look at both the front and the back, look at the spar, look at the spar cap. You know, you're looking for white powdery substance. You're looking for any sort of intergranular corrosion in the face of the spar. You're just looking for any sort of corrosion is really what you're looking for on both the front and the back out to 48. In my particular airplane that we were talking about, I just was using their AD. We were having a look. My particular airplane that we were talking about wasn't covered under the AD, but when we pulled the tanks out, I actually had the corrosion that they were talking about. We had it all the way out to station 56, 56 inches. So we actually had what they were looking for, but it just was even farther out than when was called out. So from time to time, people that are running these airplanes that are covered in the AD, it might be really good from, you know, if you look back through your aircraft records and you see that your fuel tank lines from your fuel tanks haven't been changed in 20, 25, 30, 35 five years, it may be a good time at an annual inspection to, to pull the tanks out to really get in there, have a good look while changing the fuel lines and just have the tank put back in just to make sure that you don't have any of that corrosion that's in there. On the second one that we're talking about, the, the FAA has not issued the Air Witness Directive yet. It's still in its final phases of what it's going to look like because there was a lot of comments that went into it. There's been some changes. Some models of aircraft have been removed. And so there's still a lot of discussion going on for which airplanes gonna, that are going to be. But from the Embry-Riddle accident, the wing actually had a separation. There was fatigue cracking on the bottom of the spar at the outer two most bolt holes with the fatigue cracking starting in the forward bolt hole. So on both of the wings on the bottom at the spar, forward bolt holes, what this new updated AD is going to be is you're going to remove the two bolts, the outer bolts, and you're going to use a special, uh, you're going to have an NDT company come in and you're going to have to use a special bolt hole probe that they have to go up inside and you're going to do a 360 degree examination of the inside of the bolt hole looking for cracks in the actual spar. There's been some misunderstanding, I think, out there and some people that have had these discussions and you've seen them in the forums where they think that you can just take the interior out of the airplane and you can look down the spar box where the bolts are and you can look and see, oh, there's no cracks in there and that that's it. But that's really not the situation. You have to remember about how the spar is actually put together, where you have the actual spar and then you have spar caps that go on top. And the cracks are actually originating in the holes 
in those holes. The cracks are originated in the forward side of the holes in the actual spar material itself. And it's not until you get all the way to it almost is at the very end of failure where the wing comes off where you actually get the crack to propagate up through the spar cap channels where you'll actually be able to visually see the crack. So the only real way for you to be able to tell that you that you have a crack in there is to basically unload the wings, if you will, very carefully. There's a, there's a maintenance procedure, and maybe Greg, we can talk about this at a later time. We've actually come up with a I've come up with a really good method with a couple of gentlemen that we were working at on the last couple of bolt inspections. I did. We can talk about that later. If you want to be very meticulous, this is not remove the nut, get a hammer out, drive the bolts out. <laughs> Yeah. We definitely do not. We don't want to do this. If we do it correctly, and I, I, I've actually come up with a procedure. I haven't talked to the FAA yet. We were gonna. I was gonna have a chat with them here real soon about that. But yeah. come up with a procedure about how to to correctly do this, where we can rest on the fuselage and and, and lessen the pressure on the wing. And then it's very light. It takes a, just a light amount of pressure to almost be able to push the outer bolts out. And when you, you have the correct NDT company come over, they'll do the inspection, and they can do the inspection in fifteen minutes. And you'll know. And as you know, you and I've had discussions before. I've actually already kind of found a couple of those. Yeah. So uh, I'm working with the FAA on that, too. Well, I just wanted to clarify that because uh, we had a, a great email from a listener and he was telling us about his experience in his airplane. And then I saw some other ones where it looked like there was a little bit of confusion as to whether this was the same AD that we were looking for cracks as well as corrosion versus two separate. So thanks for clarifying that. I got one last question for you while we got you. And we had done the show about propellers. John and I talked about propeller maintenance, propeller care, and, and that kind of stuff. You don't just go run your hand over the prop and feel for a nick and then blow it off and get it in your planning toe. I mean, there's a lot of things going on with that propeller that'll uh, either make or break you when it comes to flying the airplane. Is there some sort of guidance, either generic guidance or specific guidance, that pilots slash mechanics can look at to determine the depth of a nick, a rock nick, or you know some sort of gouge. Because I know they have a standard that if it, if it exceeds certain dimensions, you do certain things to fix it, whether you dress it out or you got to change the blade. Is there is there a ready reference that's at least the what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, either an industry standard or something specific by the manufacturer that says, okay, if you measure the depth of the nick. If it exceeds this, you got to do this. Yes, each one of the manufacturers. So McCulley has one, Sentinich has one, Hamilton Propellers has one. Everybody kind of has a different standard. So one of the things that you have to remember, though, is for the the nick. You know, if if it's a nick with a V in it, a V notch, where you see, you know, a stress riser is actually on the inside, and it really doesn't matter how small it is. You need to get that taken care of kind of before next flight. If it's just that you picked up a, you picked up a rock and it glanced off and it, and it made, you know, a little glance, that's kind of a judgment call. But when you get into the manufacturing, most of them, like McCulley, I did a lot of McCulley's, we did a lot of metal, but normally when you dress it out, you're just going to feather it out between two and three times the distance of the width of the nick. So you're going to go, you know, you're going to measure it, you're going to take a measurement, and then you're going to clean it and dress it out. And then once it's been completely dressed out, you take an additional measurement, and that's where you know whether the propeller is good to go or not, whether you either have to pull it off and get it overhauled or whether you just have to scrap it. So and that has to be that has to be done by an AMP. It can't be done by the pilot. Or the, that's or, AMP. 
AMP needs to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, most people think that just how deep is the nick? Oh, it's only an eighth of an inch. We're good. Well, it's not an eighth of an inch until you dress it out. Absolutely, John. It's, when you think of it this way, it really doesn't have to do with the initial impact. It has to do with the finished repair. So you're going to take the measurements on the finished repair when you get done to see whether it meets the tolerances. That's right. You said it so much better than I did. But I, I mean, I, I see so many guys just say, oh, that's not bad. You really? No, I'm there's, not a lot of, there's a lot of things on airplanes that aren't that bad. <laughs> until <laughs> until the wing comes off, the tail comes off, or uh, something else happens in flight. Eh, it's not that bad. So, well, Jason, we thank you very much for coming back on the show. Like I said, you're a friend of the show, so you, you can expect phone calls from me and John to to bring your expertise to to various subjects. But I thought that we should address the LSAs because there has been a lull. According to a lot of the literature I've been reading, there was a lull in LSA sales and stuff, but it, there appears to be a resurgence now. And and I think that as more pilots transition, especially older pilots who may not be able to hold a, a medical and that kind of thing, but still want to fly, and they're getting into LSAs and ultralights and that kind of thing, they really need to be educated on specific regulations for those types of aircraft because they don't fall under a type certificated aircraft they do require as you said a higher level of scrutiny to an extent and and if you don't know it and something happens you better be sure that the faa the ntsb or guys like me and you are going to be asking the question as to well why didn't you do this so but we uh, we definitely appreciate you coming on the show as always not a problem, and thank you very much for having me. Great. Rudder travel pitch field. Nav exterior light. Servo control. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Seatbelt no smoke. Well, John, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, and of course, our sponsor of Vemco Insurance is one of those types of insurance companies that if you're looking. To get insurance on a certificated aircraft or a LSA or a home built, of course, Avenco is the one that you probably want to make your first call to because if you do and it sounds good, it may be that it sounds even better when you say, oh, yeah, I listen to flight safety detectives and I've learned a lot from them. Guess what? You're going to get another 5% off that price. So definitely. Give Avemco a call for your aircraft needs. If you are a renter pilot, definitely talk to them for renter's insurance. And, of course, if you're a CFI working, definitely be sure to call them because there are a number of discounts that you can get from Avemco if you're a member of the of NAFI, which is the National Association of Flight Instructors, which, selfish plug, I sit on the board of directors for that organization. So, Definitely utilize all of the discounts to get the best price. But the bigger thing is get insurance so that you know that you have peace of mind. You're covered in all situations. And your family's protected. Absolutely. And because you and I see the fact that if families aren't protected, the hardships they go through. And Jason and I just happened to finish an accident recently where there was some real insurance coverage issues that we saw the heartache that was brought on a widow 
because of the misunderstanding, the, the misinformation, just the last lack of, of knowledge about the policy itself. So we definitely don't want anybody involved in an accident. But if there is an accident, we want to make sure that families are, are taken care of. So definitely call a BEMCO insurance. And their number is 888-879-0389 or on the web at avemco.com. Well, since uh, you're going to be a traveling fool in a, in a couple of weeks, uh, I guess I should batten down the hatches and look forward to, to seeing you coming out here. So I hope that one of the recent future shows will have us together in studio so that we could actually record it, post it up on the website and on our, our YouTube site so that you can see how John and I really beat up each other when we're talking about subjects and all the hand signals we give each other when we don't agree necessarily. So that should be entertaining. So I'm looking forward to either me seeing you or you seeing me when you start traveling again. And we definitely appreciate our listeners. 2020 was great. We had some awesome feedback. We encourage you to continue that. And we want to know the good, the bad, the ugly. We have show suggestions and ideas. You have questions, uh, especially if we have a guest and you have some follow-ups or you want a clarification, we'll definitely help get that information out there as well. But we appreciate all of your support. We definitely appreciate the folks that have been donating to help support and sponsor the show. Besides our primary sponsor of Emco and PAMA, we appreciate the fact that you're willing to donate any amount you offset the cost because, again, John and I are doing this as really a public service, if you will, because uh, we believe that what we've gained over our respective careers and what we know and then having guys like Jason and others on the show, we're educating you. And guess what? It's relatively free, if not free in most cases. So you're getting an education. It may be something that gives you something to think about that you hadn't thought about before. It gives you a different perspective, spikes your curiosity, if you will. So that's what we like doing. And we definitely like the feedback to make sure that we're doing it the way we believe the listeners think we should be doing it. So we definitely appreciate the flight safety detective following that we do have. So with that, my friend, John, it's always good to be with you, so I'm going to leave you with the last word. Well, I want to add just one little piece to what you said about the listener's input. I just was looking at my list in front of it. It looks like about 40% of the shows that we did, that's a rough estimate, that we have done, have the subject matter has come from emails that we've received. So keep up the emails coming because it helps us find subjects that people want to listen to. We really appreciate it. But in these trying times, I wish all of you would pay attention and stay safe in our personal lives. Wear the mask. We know they work. Wear the mask. We're getting close to the end. And if you do go flying, please fly safely. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>